this morning we're going to look at the Garden of Gethsemane. And the, the title of this series, When I Survey, we sang it this morning, comes from a great hymn by Isaac Watts. And I want to draw your attention just to a couple of lines because I think it really sets us up well for what we're going to encounter in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince Of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss. So if we're properly understanding the Easter story, everything else apart from knowing Him will become loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from His head, His hands, His feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet. So those two words, love and sorrow. That's what we're going to encounter as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to enter into a story that can only be told to us by Jesus Himself. And as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, what we're going to see um, is what the cross actually meant to Him. Before it could mean something to us, it had to mean something to Jesus. So we're going to overhear a little bit of the agony inside the story. And for us to be able to experience the joy of Easter and the triumph and the victory, we must go through really the sorrows that await us in the garden. Right? So this story is meant to bring us into the reality of what does it mean for Jesus to be fully human? What does it mean for Him to so identify with us that He takes on our sorrows, our burdens, our pain, and He suffers in our place? And so we're going to just slowly look at this narrative from Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to begin reading in verse 30. So if you have your Bibles open and you are able, would you stand with me as we read Matthew 26? Verses 30 to 46. This is right after the Last Supper. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God can be seated. Just pray with me. Father, I pray that we would all heed your invitation to enter into this garden. To witness you in agony over going to the cross causes us want to either run and hide or just feel totally vulnerable and exposed. So I pray that you help us do what's not natural in these kinds of moments, to pay attention, to allow your story to speak to our story. I pray that we would encounter you as you have so desired for us to see. I pray that the power of the Garden of Gethsemane would bring us both assurance and joy and freedom and forgiveness, but also would help us in the midst of the most broken parts of our story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at Matthew chapter 26, it's important to understand um, this doesn't have to be in the Bible at all. Right, I mean, the only human witnesses to this event, Peter, James, and John, spend most of this narrative asleep. Right, So the only way that this story gets in the Bible and you hear this intimate prayer between Jesus and His Heavenly Father is that after the resurrection, He went back and He told this story to His disciples. And there's a couple of reasons that this actually happened. Um, God wants us to know everything that he walked through. This physically, literally happened. But secondarily, he has something in the garden for every person in the room. This is an invitation for us to filter all of our life and all of our experience, whatever we have walked through, through the reality of the Garden of Gethsemane. He invites us to come. And this is especially for those that struggle to feel forgiven, right? Not that you don't have some intellectual category for what forgiveness might be, but I'm talking about on an emotional level. Like you wonder, is God really pleased with me? Does His mercy and His grace extend to this? Listen, this is the most common problem that I have faced. This is the most common problem for my own soul that I've encountered over 20 years of following Jesus and dozens and dozens and dozens of counseling meetings. People in my office with tears in their eyes saying, could God really forgive me for this? Right? The Garden of Gethsemane is meant to speak to those moments. 
the other most common struggle that I have the privilege of walking with people is when life doesn't make sense, right? When walking through trials and difficulties and sufferings and people are tempted whether they will say it out loud or not. God, I think I would have went another way on this one, right? This is what the Garden of Gethsemane is meant to speak to. Those moments that don't make sense. Those sins for which you don't think you can be forgiven. Jesus, in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane, goes and He wants to speak a word of comfort and hope. But before He speaks a word of comfort and hope, we have to enter into the agony of what Jesus actually prays on our behalf. What we're meant to do is to come face to face with our God and our Savior who is experiencing all the depth of the agony of human suffering and human weakness. And listen, it's all for us, right? It's all so that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of the universe is favorable towards us. The Garden of Gethsemane is meant to move us from people who naturally fear and naturally doubt to a group of people that are absolutely confident in the work of Jesus on their behalf. So this is an invitation for us to come and to witness the most intimate, vulnerable human moments of our Savior. Which brings me to my first point. Gethsemane reveals the depths to which Jesus goes to identify with us as our sin bearer. This takes place right after the Last Supper where Jesus is preparing his disciples, for his eventual departure. He redefines the Passover meal, which we are going to celebrate this morning, and saying, this is my body, this is my blood, and it's all for you. He's preparing them for his departure, his journey towards the cross. And going into the Garden of Gethsemane is all about him preparing his heart and his soul for that journey towards the cross. And there's... Something about listening into the earnestness of someone that prays, right? There's something completely intimate and vulnerable when you listen in and you hear someone pray. It's something to hear someone pray in a prayer meeting, but I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You've, have you ever walked in a room and you heard someone praying out loud? And you heard kind of the, the depth of what they were praying about and this happens to be my mom's in the front row, and I remember being a teenager, just walking <laughs> through a rebellion, just living for myself, and I would come in late at night, and I would hear her in the other room screaming to the top of her lungs, God, would you just save him, right? Would you just move, and would you deliver him? And, and there, was, there was something about that. She didn't know I was there. That just witnessed to me just the, the reality of the depth of emotion of what she's feeling. Jesus invites us in to the most vulnerable moment in all of human history where he is facing the agony of the cross because he wants you to know that you have beyond a shadow of a doubt a confident high priest that intercedes for you from now and for all time. So, he invites us to listen into this prayer. And this is meant to encourage us. Because listen, when no one else in the world 
you think can identify with who you are and what you're going through, Jesus says, I can. Like, I know what it's like to be human. I know what it's like to be tempted in every single way. That's what the book of Hebrews says, including the thing that you're thinking about right now. I know what it's like to be you, and I was glad to walk a mile in your shoes. So he identifies with us, but more than identify with us, as we see this narrative play out, he becomes our champion. He is our victor. Not only does he represent us, but he is victorious. He wins it all on our behalf. So we're going to see the humanity of Jesus. Look at verses 37 and 38. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So this is the kind of the height of what it means for Jesus to be the man of sorrows. Literally what he's doing is he's taking his three closest friends on the planet and he's saying, Can you watch with me? This This literally means, can you just stay awake with me for one hour? Like, I know you don't understand what I'm walking through, but I'm already starting to feel the pangs of death in my soul. Could you just be with me? Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, he doesn't pull off in isolation. He pulls people close. And I think there's something we can learn from that, right? Because most of the time when we are going through something difficult, we want to run and we want to hide. But Jesus is trying to pull his disciples close. And if there's anyone in this story that we're supposed to relate with, it's the disciples who fall asleep, right? I mean, just this need for companionship. But they do what, um, you know, all of us would do after a long day and a heavy meal, right? I mean, they fall asleep. So Jesus, in the garden, asks his disciples to stay awake. And he falls on his face and he prays, Father... If there is any other way, would you take this cup from me? He goes and he checks on his disciples and sure enough, they're asleep. And then he goes a little bit further and he prays again. He says, Father, if there's anything else that we can do, if there's anything besides this cup, would you take it from me? And he prays that same prayer a third time over and over again. There is agony in his soul And the question that should be at the front of all of our minds right now is what is it that's in this cup? What is it that's in this cup that makes Jesus fall to the ground? What is it that makes Jesus want to ask His Father if there is any other way besides Him drinking this cup? So what is in this cup? This brings me to my next point. This cup is my cup. This cup is your cup. Inside of this cup, it's referred to in Isaiah 51 as the cup of staggering. Inside this cup is the rightful, righteous wrath of God for all of my sin, for all of my pride, for all of my rebellion, for all of my greed, for all of my lust, for all of my living for myself. Jesus looks into that cup and He falls to the ground. He says, if there's any other way, can I have any other way besides taking that cup. And this is, this is just the purity of Jesus. I don't know. It says in the book of Habakkuk that his eyes are too pure to look on evil. I don't know if you've ever 
like just watched a news report and just become overwhelmed with the darkness that exists inside the world and say, man, what in the world is going on? Multiply that times all of God's people for all of all time. And that's what's inside of this cup. Jesus is looking for another way. He said, Father, if it's possible, let me find another way. And what we don't always understand is that to appreciate the love of God, right? For it not to be just a sentimental, sappy, K-love song, right? It has to be, sorry about K-love. Um, <laughs> it has to go through this agony of the garden. The reason that we can rightfully say grace changes everything is because Jesus looked into this cup and he said, not my will be done, but your will be done, right? He looked in that cup, he staggered, but he endured on our behalf. Tim Keller says this in his book, The King's Cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath. The abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. God is the source of all love, all life, all light, and all coherence. Therefore, exclusion from God is exclusion from the source of all light, all love, and all coherence. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and he staggered. So Jesus looks inside this cup and he falls to his ground looking for another alternative. He says, not my will be done, but yours be done. But can you imagine the agony of the Father in that moment? Perfect communion from all times. The Father knowing what the Son is about to face and heaven remains silent. Jesus, who was always had his prayers answered in that moment, heaven was silent. Can you imagine the legions upon legions of angels seeing the agony of Jesus in the garden, wanting to rush to his aid, right? Why was heaven silent? Heaven was silent so that our prayers for mercy would always be heard. The Father... (laughs) could find no alternative except to send his own son to the cross for us. Heaven was silent so that we could experience the mercy and the grace of God forever. Listen, it was the love of God that sent the son of God to absorb the wrath of God. So all that we know is mercy and grace. We have to understand that's what Jesus was looking at. John Stott he says this, if, if this made Jesus stagger, there has to come a point where we have to look in that cup and stagger. That Jesus took this in our place. John Stott says this, he said, it must even be said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. So just every head bowed, every eye closed, that's what we're talking about. Just, hey, just believe like this. This you have to come in contact with what's going on in this cup. We learn to appreciate the access to God which Christ has won for us only after we have seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We can cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we have first cried, woe is me, for I am lost. Right? So, 
the cup is full of the righteous wrath of God on behalf of my sin. That is the bad news, right? And if that was all that was true about Christianity, that would be very bad news indeed. That's only part of the story. The good news is Jesus exchanged his cup for my cup, right? So Jesus, who had perfectly always had communion with God, right? He rightfully gets to drink of what Psalm 116 calls the cup of salvation. And so Jesus takes the cup that's bound for me, the cup of wrath, and we get to drink the cup of salvation. So all that we know now is mercy and grace and forgiveness. This is a worldview changing reality that as the people of God, all we get to experience is the mercy of God. That God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So let this speak to you, right, if you struggle to feel forgiven. Charles Spurgeon was often familiar with doubt and discouragement. I read this this week. He said, I am the subject of depression so fearful that I hope none of you ever go through such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. And then he goes on to say, How filthy, how loathsome in the sight of God I feel myself only fit to be cast into the lowest hell. And I wonder that God has not long ago cast me there, but I go into Gethsemane and I peer under those gnarled olive trees and I see my Savior. Yes, I see Him wallowing on the ground in anguish and hear such groans come from Him has never come from the human breast before. I look upon the earth and I see it red with his blood while his face is smeared with gory sweat. And I say to myself, my God, my Savior, what aileth thee? I hear him reply, I am suffering for thy sin. And I then take comfort for while I feign, I would have spared my Lord such an anguish. Now that anguish is over, I can understand how Jehovah can spare me because he smote his son in my stead. Right? This is what's going on here. Jesus takes the cup that we deserve and he gives us the cup that he deserves. We have forgiveness and freedom from Jesus. The great hymn, I Stand Amazed in His Presence, says this, For me it was in the garden, he prayed, not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweats of blood for mine. How marvelous, how wonderful my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. So how do we respond to such wonderful news? Like we receive it as a gift, right? This truth as we enter into the garden is supposed to create worshipers, right? If you are here and you find your heart cold, towards spiritual things. We get to focus in on the place where His love is most clearly revealed. This means very practically that we don't boast in our achievements for God, but we boast in His achievements for us. We don't boast in what we do for Him, but we boast in what He's done for us. This creates an atmosphere of gratefulness. I mean, this simultaneously should absolutely humble us to the core of who we are, but also give us the greatest confidence that He has paid it all on our behalf. So we respond to Gethsemane with thankfulness and worship, 
But there's also another invitation here, and that's for those that are suffering. Finally, we bring our sorrows to the man of sorrows, right? And there are sorrows enough in this room. I mean, if we would just sit and recount each other's trouble, right? I mean, tears would flow for days. I mean, the reality is we all have troubles. We talked about them and trusting God in the midst of that during worship. But for us, we see God redeeming the darkest hour in human history. I mean, we can trust him that he's going to redeem our darkest moments in those things that we walk through. That he actually wants us to come and he wants us to bring our sorrows and our cares It says in Isaiah that he's already carried them and he bears them on the tree. But I think most of the time, right, I mean, we hesitate to bring those things to him that are most painful. This is an invitation from God to say, listen, I have already borne it all on the tree. You can bring me your sorrows and I will give you my comfort. This is an invitation for us. And even... Even deeper than that, Jesus is not just a moral example for us to follow. It's wonderful to be able to represent us. But um, he is our substitute. So if you have had a hard time and you doubt and you're discouraged in the midst of your trial, the reality is that Jesus represents you, that his righteousness speaks for you. And so that we have this great promise that God himself represents us through Jesus. So we can have hope and comfort in the midst of just all the difficult things that we're going through. Just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion and we're going to go and we're going to taste what grace tastes like. This this isn't a, a formal meal that we go through, but this is to remind us of what he's already endured on our behalf. And we make an exchange every time we go to the table, our sin for his righteousness, but also our sorrows for his comfort. So as I pray, I want you to think about the things that are bringing you sorrow and transfer those to the man of sorrows. Let's pray.